If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we are in James and a powerful, powerful passage, uh, James 1, 13 through 18. James writes, God speaks, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, where it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father and our God, we come seeking truth, answers to hard questions. But Lord, more than that, we desire to find truth. You are truth. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself that much more to us this morning? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You might have heard this quote before. We have met the enemy and he is us. Sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, but it wasn't him. It was actually in a uh, comic strip, Pogo says this, we have met the enemy and he is us. And it actually applies quite well to this passage from James. James is is very practical, often been called the the Proverbs of the New Testament. And James, in this passage, is in effect going to answer the question of what is life? Not life in the philosophical, what's, what's the meaning of life, which is obviously super important, but what is life in the practical? How do I live it out in the midst of trials, tribulations, temptations, when life is hard? How do I live it out? And James is going to get into the, going to get into the messy part of it, into the weeds, into the, the, the hard stuff, the messy stuff. And I think of my son who wants to go on, get his degree, uh, be a PT, be a physical therapist, and he has in his mind that I get the degree, and then I go right to Clemson, and I'm the head trainer, and I'll see the defensive tackles, and I'll give them a couple stretches, and they'll be back out there on the field. I said, Jonathan, it's not that way. You're going to have to work your way up. You're going to have to go out to those little road races, those 5Ks, and people are going to come in there sweaty and nasty, and stinky, say, rub my shoulders, fix my calf. He's got to get messy and nasty. And James is doing that for us this morning. He's saying, I'm going to get in there with you. This is not easy. This is nasty. This is practical stuff that James is going to let us get into because the enemy is us. The enemy is us is the, one of the big messages that James is going to give us this morning. So if you want the big idea, here's where we're going. The big idea is this. When we are faced with temptation, we must acknowledge the truth about ourselves and respond by bravely fleeing 
from our flesh, the enemy is us, and running toward Christ. I say bravely because it is a battle. This is not just a little t-ball game where everybody plays. It's all, doesn't matter if we lose 50 to 0 because there's a snack and a drink afterwards and everybody's happy, happy, happy. This is your life is on the line battle. Luther put it this way. It is clear from this that the Christian life is a trial, a warfare, and a struggle. It is also clear how those who are doing battle must be trained so that they do not despair if they are not entirely free from the temptation to sin. So I'd ask you, if you have your Bibles, please keep them open. Our outline is simple. We're just going to walk through the text, beginning in verse 13. And you might remember from last week, Pastor Adam took us and finished up in uh, verse 12. And verse 12 was positive in the side that we got that if there is testing or tribulation, and then it is met with or perfected with steadfastness, then the result is life. Wonderful, beautiful picture there in verse 12. But then James pivots a bit and says, well, if anybody has ever counseled anybody or really lived life without their head in the sand, you know that those tests can hurt. There are times where this little test became a big test. Lord, I'm ready to get off the operating table. That's enough. That's enough of this. I want off. Why, God, why are you doing this to me? And so verse 13 shifts to a negative side of temptation. A bit of a difference there between the tempt, I mean the, uh, the test and temptation. So verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted. Different word. So then the question is, ah, so what I need is to know the difference when it's a test Ah, that's from God. Good. When it's a temptation, oh, that's the enemy is us. That's bad. So if I can just get that. Oh, and I'll look in the Bible because there's different words there. Let me know which is which so I can put them in the right buckets, right? Well, if we look at the word, what's the word in verse 13? We see that trial in the English, parasmus in the Greek. Okay, got that? Temptation, English, Parasmus, Greek. No difference. We can't go to the Greek just to see what the difference is. Hmm. We're going to have to dig further. So God can bring tests. Does God bring the temptation? Adam in the garden. Genesis 3 says, God, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. She did. You gave it. God, it's your fault. So Adam blames God for the temptation. So that's not a, a, an old question of can God send temptations. Back in 200 BC, Jewish literature says this. Don't blame the Lord for your sin. 
The Lord does not cause what he hates. Don't claim that he has misled you. He doesn't need the help of sinners to accomplish his purposes. Fact, God is not the author of evil. God made everything good. We can look in Genesis. says, created this. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Everything God creates is good. Therefore, anything good he creates. Whatever he does is always good. He is not the source, the author of evil. Fact. We must land there. We could say there are three sources of evil, of sin. Sources for sin. Satan. We know that one, right? Now James is going to deal with Satan later in the book. In this passage, there's no uh, bringing out of Satan as the source for sin. So we're going to table that one. Satan, number one. The world, number two, that throws temptations at us right and left. And then number three, ourselves. Again, met the enemy. He is us. James is going to focus on our sin nature as a source for sin this morning. So we could say this, or we can't say this. We can't say the devil made me do it. Not a valid excuse for James, for God, for us. Fact. There are tests and trials from outside. Tests and trials from outside that ideally push us through steadfastness towards God, blessing life. There are temptations from inside and from outside that tear us away from God. So if God is not doing it, if he's not the source of the temptations, where do they come from? Let's look at verse 14. Call this just for you. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each one, previously James has said, no one can blame God. Each one is tempted, lured, enticed. He gives the picture of hunting or fishing where there is a false bait. There's the fly that the fish goes for. It's false. The fish is enticed and goes for it. Our temptations are crafted just for us. Something hard for me might be easy for you, and vice versa. Why do you struggle with that? I just, it's a flip, could be true there. We need to give grace to each other when someone is tempted with something. We also need to flee even from the little temptations that they don't give birth to something worse. The temptations are false, but they're effective for each of us. We're lured, we're enticed. I think of it this way, it's often like in our dreams. You know in your dreams, whatever you think, I hope that doesn't happen, that happens. I hope the bad guy doesn't have the art space modulator, he's going to shoot me with there, he's got the space modulator gun, he's after you. You go run in the elevator, man, I hope this elevator isn't broken, and then all of a sudden... The ropes break and the elevator's plunging down and you get that sinking feeling. You're falling. Ah, 
oh, you're falling. I hope that didn't happen. That's what happens. I guess y'all don't have those kind of dreams. So you just have the dreams about, oh, I'm in college and I haven't been in class for a year. You know, Whatever, we're lured and enticed by what is crafted for us. Just like in the dreams. Satan's not omniscient. Satan's not omniscient. But our flesh knows us. And we're lured and enticed. So, so we make it clear. Scriptures make it clear. Our, the temptation, it's luring, it's enticing me. Ah, so it's not my fault. Right? It's just the flesh, whatever. I'm just the spirit. It's not my fault. Ah, who's to blame? Verse 15 says this. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's us, not God, who's tempting here. The irony is that this. So you got the positive side again that Adam brought out, that the trial, the test, embraced with steadfast endurance, perfection, in life, blessing of life, gives birth to life. The temptation, when perfected in sin, gives birth to death gives birth to death. John Owens put it this way, in effect, that we are tempted to sin by sin. Our sin nature gives birth more and more to sin. There's, there's in effect a snowball, a snowball effect that we have to watch out for. You know, if, if you're a visitor here this morning, you say, good grief, you know, I thought I was going to a happy church. All you're doing is talking about sin. Can we have the lunch now with Pastor Adam? I went out of here. But yes, we, we do talk about sin. Because Scripture is talking about sin, we must have that in order to lay the course for what's coming later in this passage. So yes, we feel like we must be honest, as Scripture is, about sin. So there is a snowball effect. And we see this here. Thankful, so thankful that technology is working. The snowball effect. So here we have Pastor Adam. And he's caught in the snowball effect here. He's embracing UT. And he can't get away from it. Even the helmet's on backwards. But if he does not turn and repent, then they're going to go over and he will just have snowball effect on and on and on with that. So, silly example, but the same thing, once that sin, that true sin, not embracing UT sin, but the true sin will snowball and continue little sin to bigger sin, harder to break the chain. Harder to break the chain. Now, here's the good thing. The snowball effect can go in reverse. There is a positive side to this that we can see. Pastor Adam repents, embraces Clemson. All is good and the snowball will go in the other direction. But the point being, righteousness. When we embrace, repent of sin, embrace Christ, follow through. Start giving. Giving can become easier. Start blessing people and not speaking harsh words. Embracing that. There's a snowball effect to walking with the Lord and seeing the effects of that. 
It can go in both directions. So in the scripture, what's the answer? How to avoid the snowball in the negative direction? How do we avoid that? What does James say? Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There in your outline, you have the silly phrase, don't be a Pluto. What does that mean? The word for being deceived in the Greek is planasta, from which we get the word planet. Planets wander in their orbit. That's where they got the word for planet. So our call is not to wander. Don't be deceived. Wander little step, big step, farther and farther away. The antidote, the cure is to don't be deceived and really what the word means is don't deceive yourselves. It's what's called a middle voice. It's saying don't deceive yourselves, self-deception, avoid that. Well, So what does that have to do with this? In this passage, what's underlying is, God, if I'm tempted, I'm going to blame you for it. It's coming from you. It's not coming from you, then you're not doing anything. One of those two. It's either you're not good to me and you're sending me this temptation or you don't give a care or you can't do anything. You're not powerful enough. You're just sitting on the side. So God, you're not good or you're not powerful or both. And that's what's at our hearts in self-deception. God cannot tempt with evil It's against his nature. It's not natural for him to tempt with evil, but it is natural for us to blame. It's natural for us to blame. We want to blame someone for anything that goes wrong. The song goes, but now I'm happy I have learned the lesson this has taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. So a little sermon within the sermon. Justification. This is how justification works. If I can put the blame on someone else, it wasn't my fault we lost the game. The umpire made a bad call. It's his fault. It's not my fault, Mom, that I got a bad grade. Sissy was coughing all night, kept me up, couldn't sleep. The sister you gave me, Mom, it's your fault. It's not my fault that I've been thinking about other women with the way you've been treating me. Justification feels good because I can be angry at someone else. Adam did it in the garden. God, you did this. We can put the blame somewhere else. Proverbs 19.3 makes it quite clear what we're doing. Some people ruin themselves by their own stupid actions and then blame the Lord. Quite practical. Proverbs and James. So unbeliever, if you're here with us this morning and you're hearing this about justification, there is only one true way to be justified. You must go up the chain. You can't just blame a peer. You must go up the chain to the only one who can take the true justification, 
who can say, yes, I will take the blame, I will take the sin, I will take all the blame shifting because I don't need to pass it to anyone else. I've lived the perfect life. I will take yours. I will justify you. And I am the only one who can. That is where you must go. I must go. And James softens the appeal. My beloved brothers, I get this. I'm with you in it. It's a common struggle. In verse 17, if God doesn't send the temptations, what does he send? Okay, we're making a He doesn't send the temptations. So is he just do nothing? No, that's not honoring God. God does send. There's a paradigm shift in verse 17. Temptation takes, God gives. God gives. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The ancient Greek philosopher Philo said that light was the loveliest of all gifts. The loveliest of all gifts. James, likely having awareness of that, of that view of light, says that God, he sustains with light, but he also orders Every bit of light that you see, the stars, the lights, I'm in control. I order them. I command them. We're in a culture where talk show, talk show hosts, they're our theologians. Hollywood defines morality. Any speech that is inclusive of anything but Christianity is truth. To this, God is saying in this passage, I'm the father of light, of beauty, of truth. I am beauty. I am truth. I am greater than all the gifts. I am the gift giver. He says, I'm not like the turning shadow. What, what is that? Likely some sort of technical term there. Maybe referring to eclipses or shooting stars. We don't know for sure. But any shadows that they left, that's change. God is saying, I do not change. God is, we'll say, he's impassable. He cannot be acted upon. Nothing can change him, move him, cause him to sin in any way. He has no sin nature. There's nothing that can change God. He's unlike the shifting, shifting shadows. But more than that, he gives gifts, perfect gifts, coming down. God condescends. God condescends to you and to me. And for the unbeliever, often it's, you know, God, I, I won't come to you until you answer all my questions first. But God gives gifts so that you, unbeliever, know enough to be thankful to him. And besides, if God were to peel back the curtain, answer every question in mind-numbing detail, would you really believe? Part of the reason not everything is answered is likely to leave us in awe. To know that he created, to know that he sustains, don't know how, be in awe. That's the answer God gave to Job. Job said, I demand that you tell me 
Why, how, who, who, what? You tell me. God says, Job, let me ask you some questions. Did you do this? When was this? How did it? Job says, I shut up. I am in awe. Much of what God is showing here is we should respond in awe. And when there's a loss of awe, there's a loss of gratitude. And we should be thankful for the Father of lights who gives gifts and good gifts and perfect gifts. If we're happy about something, say thank you, Lord. Not thank you, Lord, just for the day or just for this meal. Thank you, Lord, for whatever good comes through the day. Verse 18, the gospel, the gospel is here of his own will, of God's own will. He brought us, you and me, forth by the word of truth. His will, wasn't that he looked and said, well, I see this person isn't going to fall to this temptation. They're pretty good. I choose that. That one won't. I'm not going to choose them. God chose his pleasing will, not dependent on anything of us. Our part was, I sinned. I screwed it up. Worse than any of you all. He was gracious to me. He's gracious to you, believer. By the word, by the word, logos, by Christ, he saved us the only way that he could. He did it through his will. And then he leaves us with this. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits. First fruits, if you look through scripture, kind of all over the place in there. It was the first harvest or the finest produce. Sometimes it was gold and silver, valuable. Sometimes it was firstborn sons that were set apart to the Lord. Sometimes it was Israel as a whole, firstborn. Christ himself the first fruits of the resurrection. And then as we look forward, the word eschatology to the end times, we are first fruits raised anew. Pascal said that we, knowing that about the end times, about eschatology, we should define life backward and live it forwards, knowing what's coming So there's the scripture. Apply this. You, me, apply this with temptations. In a a revelation class, here's a a typical scripture that comes up in there. Revelation 2.10. Just hear what this says. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulations, tests and tribulations. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Test, tribulation. What's what? I'm wrestling through this. Help me apply this. From God's perspective, whatever you're wrestling through could be a test to push you towards him in depth of relationship. Satan's perspective to tempt you to destroy you. Destroy. Not hurt you a little bit. Destroy. Our flesh. Pull us away from God. So our first step, acknowledge, I'm, I'm not, I'm a wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Ephesians says, 
This is a test. This is a trial. This is a temptation. I need to do something. Some of us need to be more aware and pay attention. I could tell my little league team, did he throw you a curveball? Did he throw you a fastball? I don't know. I was hitting the ball. Some of us need to pay more attention. Take every cap, every thought captive. Pay attention. Why am I being hit with this temptation? Maybe, maybe I need some guardrails in place that this doesn't keep happening. Me in the in the in the in the winter when it's dark and uh, you know it's cold and whatever. I don't need to be near the pantry if I have something that's bothering me. The children, the Donna's going to find me in the pantry just eating the chocolate chips. I need guardrails. Stay away from the pantry in the winter when it's cold and all that. Some of us, though, can do too much analysis. Get into the analysis paralysis. In the end, you're in the game. Okay? Swing the bat. I'm just going to take everyone. No. Is it that trigger or that trigger that's causing me? Yes, that's good if you can analyze that. But in the end, be faithful, pray, get out. Get out. We need to respond. We need to respond. And here's here's some good news in this. Saint, sinner. Which one's bigger? For you, believer, there's a little s on the sinner. And there's a capital S on the saint. Scripture refers to you, brothers and sisters, as saints. Because Christ saved you, and because He made you first fruits, you can succeed. Will you succeed every time? No, but you can. There is hope. We are redeemed as first fruits in Christ. Do not just beat yourself up all the time. James is not doing that here. You don't do it either. Our response is to turn to God in dependence. Lord, I need you. Sustain me. Strengthen me. Give me wisdom. Whatever, you're, whatever am I experiencing, you know about it. Nothing comes to us that didn't cross God's desk first and was approved. Joel Harlow, here years back, stole that one from him. God knows about it. God gave the approval. He's not the author of evil. Marry those together because Scripture does. With Job, with Job, Christopher Ash said this of Job. Satan comes to God. God says, do you know about Job? Who brought it up first? This is how God treats his friends. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. This is how God treats his friends. God may not be giving you and me the easiest little path because he cares about what's at the end, that you would be sanctified, in the end, glorified with him. This stuff along the way, temptations, We can make it through it, and it's worth it. And if that's not our God, then you, then I need to read our Bibles because that's God in Scripture. He's not just the squishy, friendly, my friend, help me, carry me. He's the same God who is going to kick Satan's tail into hell forever 
And that's one of the things that we're getting, that this is a cosmic battle. He will win and be glorified. We don't need to put blame on him for any of this because he's all good. We may not comprehend everything, but we can apprehend that he is Lord. His word says so. Application takeaway. Let's really boil this down. Get in an accountability relationship. You, me, all of us. What do I mean there? Movie All Quiet on the Western Front. Young recruits on the front line. They're getting shelled in a dugout for 24 hours. One of them bolts out, gets obliterated. Even with that, seeing that, another one creeps towards the door. Two have to hold him down. What are you doing? Don't do that. What are you doing to yourself and to others? Accountability. Men, women, youth, we need accountability. And it's not just the accountability where it's just five questions. I'm going to ask you, you know, just yes, no questions. Did you look at porn? Did you lie to me? Those those have value. Ask open-ended questions that you work out in the group where you get to someone's heart. What did you watch last night? How were you feeling in that discussion with your husband? It's accountability so that we don't Get lured, enticed, take the bait. We stop it with the little temptation. Don't let it get to the major temptation. Think about it, youth. How many youth would be willing to say, I'm going to get a couple guys. I'm going to get a couple girls. And we're going to help each other. We're going to put questions together that will help us to avoid this, but also to embrace this. There's the positive side of accountability. That's not just a stop, stop catch somebody, it's to spur on towards love and good deeds. Scripture says we need accountability. Brothers and sisters, find whether it's one-on-one, whether it's a group, get in accountability relationship. That's the discipleship plug. That's the takeaway for us this morning so that the temptations were not going them alone. They will come. They will come. Do not go them alone. And I finish with this. First fruits. First fruits. Thinking to the future. We're not home yet. These temptations are hard and they will continue to be hard. Look to the future. Story goes of a missionary couple coming back. I think I've mentioned this once before. Missionary coming, uh, couple coming back after decades overseas. They're on a ship. They come back to the shore, and there's cheering. And the man says to his wife, ah, after all these years, we're finally being recognized. They realize what we've done. And as they pull into port, they find out on the same ship was was Theodore Roosevelt, and he was coming back from a safari, a week safari. And all the people cheering, welcome back, president, welcome back. And the man hangs his head. And his wife says, this is not what it's all about. We're not home yet. This is not our home. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the temptations we can endure for a short time because we're not home yet. Let's pray.